0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, our friend Hannah Stevens continues our study on the life of Jacob from our long study of Genesis as we consider who Jacob really was and how he saw himself. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now... Let's head over to Hannah.:
1: My name is Hannah Stevens. I work at Western Theological Seminary, and I work with congregations um, around questions of how do they engage with people who live and work in their church's neighborhood? And I attend here with my husband and three children. Um, I'm really excited to be back with you again. We are in a series um, since January of Genesis. We've been working through the book of Genesis. And the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the story of Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. Um, He is the son of Isaac, the promised child. And his story is really significant um, in the stories of the ancestors of the Hebrew people. Um, Abraham is kind of the beginning of God calling a family um, to make God's uh, promises and um, the things that he plans to do in the world. He picks this family and establishes this family to be the source of what God's going to do in the world. And when we get to Jacob... Jacob is the one that one becomes the foundation for the name for the Hebrew people and also establishes the tribe of the Hebrew people. So we're looking at this week, we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at quite a bit of text. Um, We've kind of gone a little bit slower through the Jacob story, but we're going to look at some bigger themes that we see in this story. And we're going to cover basically the 20 years of this kind of exile period of Jacob's life, in which he's left home um, and all the things that he does before he returns home. Um, And I want you to pay attention as we dive into this text um, to a couple elements, because as the people of God, we think about our interactions, we think about our relationships, we think about kind of our loyalties and responsibilities in two ways— We have kind of this vertical dimension um, to what, um, to our relationships and to how we interact in this world. These are the ways that we communally and individually interact with God and kind of get direction from God. And there's commandments that guide this, how we should come before God, Um, that we shouldn't go to other gods, that there is one God, Um, And we also have this kind of horizontal dimension that's about our relationships with each other. And we have commandments around that too, how we should be interacting with each other. And these two dimensions kind of play with each other. Um, And in these stories, with the story of Abraham, this first establishment, we see a lot of this vertical dimension. And there's a focus on promise. Will God fulfill God's promises? And we see that over time with Abraham, with Isaac. And we see a lot of interaction between Abraham and God. With Jacob, we start to explore this horizontal dimension a lot more. And it gets really messy. Um, as we've already seen, is how does this play out? Jacob has this interactions with God as well, but he gets in a lot of trouble and has a lot of conflict as he interacts with other people. And his focus, his concern, is around blessing. Is God going to bless me in this space? So I want you just to keep those two in mind and see as we go through this story where you see those engagements. Um, with Jacob kind of in this vertical dimension with God and and all the things that are going to happen in the relationships and this dimension with other people, which Jacob struggles with a little bit. Um, so let's go to the text. We're going to pick this story up in Genesis 28. So what has happened so far is Jacob... Um, has, we had this early interaction where he traded his brother's birthright um, for stew. So he gave his brother a meal and his brother gave him his birthright which is his portion of the inheritance. It's a significant valuable thing that he traded for. And then he deceived his father, dressed up like his brother, to steal his blessing. And Esau is so mad that Jacob has to go on the run. And there's kind of the secondary reason that Rebecca does not want Jacob to marry one of these local women, go to my brother's house and marry one of his daughters. So there's the secondary reason to go. But the primary driving reason is because it's not safe for Jacob. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Esau is that angry. And so Jacob has to go. So he goes out on his own into the wilderness. And this is where we pick up the story. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until you've done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of that you give me. I will give you a tenth. So I think sometimes when we read stories in scripture, we um, don't fully grasp that this is like a human experience, right? We're like, oh yeah, that thing happened. But try to put yourself in Jacob's position for a moment. One of the things we know about Jacob is he doesn't like to be far away from the tents. He's not like Esau, where he likes to go out and hunt and be in the wilderness. He likes to stay close to home. And he's alone and he's in the wilderness. And he doesn't know Laban and he doesn't really know where he's off to. And that's the experience where we meet Jacob. He's at kind of his lowest point here. He's done all this conniving and trading. And, like, he's risked everything and may not even get any of of what he was risking for. And that's where God shows up. That's where God meets Jacob at his kind of lowest point. And God shows up big. God makes big promises to Jacob here in the wilderness. Jacob has nothing. And God says, I am going to be with you. God offers Jacob presence. I will be with you. And God op- offers Jacob protection. I will watch over you. And then God offers Jacob a return home. I will bring you back to this land. Jacob has done nothing. Jacob has nothing. God shows up and makes these big promises to Jacob. He offers protection, He offers presents, and he promises to bring him back home. And Jacob, who is ever the dealer and, you know, deal maker, um, and is a little bit overly confident about what he has to offer God, he responds with, well, if, if you do that, God, then you'll be my God. Then, and, I'll give you a tenth of what you give me back. I a little bit wanna picture God being like, that's cute, Jacob. But God has nothing but grace here. And there's another thing that God is doing with Jacob in the wilderness. God is pulling back the curtain. We have a couple of artistic renderings of what this might have looked like. It's this image of a stairway kind of from heaven to earth, with this idea that there's traffic between heaven and earth. God and God's messengers in the world are moving between heaven and earth. And if you think you're alone, Jacob, you are not. Jacob came to this place without any idea of the relevance of God In that place. He says it when he wakes up. God was here and I didn't know God was here. But this dream, this vision breaks into that and says, and pulls back the curtain to say, Jacob, it's not what it seems. You are not alone in this place. God is present here and with you. It's a peek into that vertical dimension that we're talking about. Showing Jacob, whatever you think is happening out on this horizontal realm, there's something more happening. And you need to see it. So from there, we go out with Jacob. And it seems like the things that God is saying is true. Um, The Good fortune kind of follows Jacob. Uh, He gets to, um, he, the next story that we, we see with Jacob is he gets to Haran. Um, he gets to a well, and their people there are from Haran. And they know his uncle. They know Laban, who he's out trying to find. And not only that, wouldn't you know, Laban's daughter Rachel, she's coming with her sheep right now. And Jacob Um, Again, ever confident in his abilities and his idea of what should happen now. Uh, Rachel comes with her flock and he asks, like, "Why, why are we waiting around here? Why aren't we, like, getting the water from the well? And apparently there's this deal. There's this pact between the shepherd there that they all wait until they're present. They all come until they're present so that Um, they can remove the stone together and take equal shares of the water. But Jacob jumps in there and moves the stone himself so he can water Rachel's flock and is like, I am a relative of yours. And she excitedly runs off to get her uncle Laban. So now Jacob goes to um, Laban's house. And a month in, they have this conversation about wages. Laban comes um, to Jacob and says, "Um, you don't have to work for me for free, what would you like for your wages? Now, we're in that horizontal realm, right, of interacting with other people. And so Jacob says, I will work for you for seven years for the hand of your daughter Rachel in marriage. That's what I want for my wages. And Laban agrees. That sounds great. Um, I'd rather give her to you than someone else. Done. So Jacob works for seven years. And um, he gets to the wedding. (laughs) Laban throws a big party. And then he switches the bride. And Jacob realizes that it's, Not Rachel that he's married, but Leah, the older sister, with weak eyes. And he confronts Laban about this. Didn't I work for you for seven years for Rachel? Why have you given me Leah in marriage? And Laban says, well, well, um, we have this custom that we don't marry the younger daughter off before um, the older daughter. Um... Laban didn't see the need to mention this prior in any of those seven years, right? Um, but here's the deal: I will give you Rachel in marriage for another seven years of work. Um, just finish out your bridal week with Leah, and then I'll give you Rachel in marriage. So some people get really excited or about, or like see some justice in, in like, the tricker is getting tricked here.) <laughs> um, but again, what would that be like? <laughs> to think you're marrying one person and turns out you married a different person. And now also, you're gonna owe seven more years of labor for this. It's not what you thought it was going to be. And of course, there's this irony here because uh, Jacob has already struggled with the like, oldest, youngest dynamic. <laughs> that he's now facing again in his, in his wives. Um, and there's also this irony around like, he ch- pretended to be Esau, and now Laban has like switched his daughters as well. But he agrees, seven more years, marries Rachel. And then we get to this point in the text in which they start having children. And this is gonna be the establishment of the tribes the Hebrew people. Um, and God is really present in this part of the story. It's actually the center part of the exile narrative. Um, we build all the way to this part from what, the time that Jacob gets out into the wilderness and from when Joseph is born, Jacob turns towards home. So this is this is kind of the center of like part of the point of what Jacob is doing in this exile period is going Um, marrying his wives and establishing the tribes through the children. And God shows up three times in um, giving Jacob a child. And during this time, uh, Leah is blessed with lots of children and Rachel is unable to have children. And the text tells us God sees that Leah isn't loved and he gives her a child and another and another. And she has these four sons and gets to this point where she stops trying to get Jacob's attention with the sons and turns towards praising God for God seeing her and giving her these children. And Rachel, she can't have kids at this point and she gets mad at Jacob. She says, give me a child or I will die. And Jacob is like, what do you want me to do? I'm not God. There's this conflict here, this tension here. But eventually, The text tells us God remembers Rachel, and she does have a child. And it's at that moment where Jacob starts turning towards home. He wants to go back to the land of his father. But there's conflict again, because Laban does not want him to leave. Laban realizes that he's been blessed because of Jacob's presence with him. And he does not want that blessing to go with Jacob. So they have another wage dispute, um, trying to make a new agreement. And what have we learned about Laban and his ability to make agreements here? Um, But Jacob names his wages. And he says, I will take all of the speckled and spotted and striped of the livestock. Those will be mine. And all the ones that are pure white, those will be yours. And that way you'll know if I've stolen from you. Because... A mine will all be the speckled and spotted sheep and goats, the livestock. That will be mine. That's how we'll know. Laban's like, great. Deal. And then what does Laban do? He takes all of the speckled and spotted and striped of the livestock. He gives them to his sons and he sends them away on a three-day journey. This is a great deal, Jacob. (laughs) So Jacob, through some means that we don't fully understand, other than to say God is with Jacob. God is protecting and looking over Jacob. He's able to make the the livestock produce speckled and spotted and striped. um, Goats and sheep. He's able to kind of manipulate this. And not only that, he's able to make his flocks be the strong ones, and weaken Laban's fox in the process. God is with him, and even though Laban tried to trick him out of his wages, he's still able to grow in wealth. And he actually grows so much in wealth that Laban's sons get angry about it. And he hears rumblings about how they're saying that he is stealing from their father and how he is weakening their inheritance. And they're upset about it. And Jacob starts to realize, I've got to get out of here. It's time for me to go. And based on how he's experienced Laban, he realizes that Laban may not let him go. Laban may not let him take anything with him not his wife, wives or children or any of the wages that he's earned. And so he calls to, he sends for his wives and has them come with the kids out into the fields. And he says, your father's has changed toward me. We need to go back to the land of my father. And they agree. And they take off without saying goodbye to Laban. Laban hears about this and he chases after them. He takes a seven-day journey to catch up with them. And just as he's reaching them, God comes to Laban. And God says, do not harm Jacob. Don't say a word to him, good or bad. God intervenes in this story. Are we tracking with the things that are happening in the horizontal dimension? But also how God's interacting as well to impact what happens. He comes to Laban, he says, do not say a word to him, good or bad. And of course he does the next day when he confronts Jacob. And says, you took my children. You ran off. If you had told me, I would have celebrated you. I would have sent you out with songs. But no, you run off with my kids. And everything here, this is all mine. You've run off with it. But God warned me not to harm you but why did you take my family's gods? And the ever confident Jacob says, I didn't take your family's gods. If anyone here has it, they shall not live. Because of course, he doesn't realize his beloved Rachel has the gods. And then we have this very funny scene. Laban is searching through the tents looking for the family gods. And Rachel is sitting on them. They're in her camel's bags and she's sitting on them, watching her father kind of search through the tents for these gods. And she even says to him, "I'm sorry I'm not rising to greet you. It's my time of the month." And it's a humorous scene. And there's a juxtaposition here between Laban's gods and Jacob's god. Because Jacob's God has just impacted this scene. Jacob's God has come to Laban and spoken to Laban. And Laban's gods are being sat on. They can be stolen. They can be lost. Jacob's God is always with him, looking out for him, keeping him, watching him, bringing him safely home. Jacob and Laban come to this kind of begrudging agreement, like, you won't kill me, I won't kill you. And they part ways. And now, this is the most terrifying thing for Jacob. He has to turn back home and face Esau. For 20 years... He has been gone, knowing that his brother wanted to kill him. And he has no idea what is going to happen when he meets him again. And so he sends messengers ahead to say, Esau, your brother is coming. And you know what he hears back? Esau's coming with 400 men. If you are Jacob, you are terrified. Now, Forget we know how this story goes. Think about Jacob. He is looking at the faces of his wives and his young kids. He's imagining that he might be leading them to their death. That they may go out and he may have to watch them be slaughtered. He is terrified. This is what we read in the text. Isn't that working? All right. Hold on. All right. In great fear and distress, this is Genesis 32, starting in 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. Here, we see the most humble version of Jacob yet. I had nothing, and yet you came to me. He calls on God to do what God has said, and he seems to acknowledge for the first time that he is not in control of what happens next. He seems to acknowledge he cannot bargain his way out of this. He is about to face something, and he needs God to act. And he calls on God to act by repeating back to God what God has said. This is a theme throughout Scripture of the people of God going to God and saying, you said you would watch over us. You made these promises. Be who you said you are. That is what Jacob does here. You told me to go back. You told me you would bring me safely to the land of my fathers. You told me you would be with me. Be what you said you would be. Do for me what you said. He comes humbly but boldly to say, I believe that this is true. Show up for me. And then we have this scene. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Can we just admit that this is strange? It's a strange story. There's a wrestling match between God and man and for some reason God can't overpower Jacob? What? And there's a lot written about this text. Um, There's a lot of speculation about who this man is. Some people wonder, is it actually Esau? Is it a messenger of God? Is it a demon? Is it really God? There's a lot of just debate around what is actually happening here. For us, Today, we're going to take it at face value because this man in naming Jacob makes a statement about you've wrestled with God and with man, and you have overcome. And Jacob makes this claim, I've seen God face to face, and yet I was spared. So in some way, we're going to accept together today that Jacob encounters God and wrestles with God in this moment. And can we just talk about Jacob's persistence? You know, this this, um, character trait that we've seen throughout his whole life of going after the things that he wants and not giving up and kind of all means necessary to get what he wants, right here, it actually seems like a good trait He wrestles all night long. We're given an indication that this is a long time. The conversation they have is after a lot of wrestling. And Jacob hangs in there, continues to wrestle, holds on, and will not let go until he gets what he wants. We actually see this trait way back in the beginning of Jacob's story, He has this ability to look at the long term and to wait for the thing that he wants. When he makes the trade with Esau, Esau is trading for an immediate satisfaction of his hunger. Jacob doesn't actually get anything in that moment. But Jacob is valuing this future thing, and he's willing to wait for it. He's willing to give up the moment, the satisfaction in the moment of the food to wait for the thing that he knows is more valuable in the long run. Jacob shows an incredible amount of persistence and perseverance. And we see it played out here in this wrestling match. There's another thing that happens here. Jacob, for the first time, says the statement, I am Jacob. Though he's met many people throughout this exile period, he never says his name. With a text, the narrator never has him make that statement. And we know that there's a little bit of complexity with Jacob and his name and his identity and who he is. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Tim talked about this. This name that he was given because he came out grasping his brother's heel. This idea that he would be striving and grasping throughout his life that later became associated with a deceiver as well. And when he steals the blessing from Esau, Esau says, isn't Jacob named well that he would do this? There's a a little bit of tension here for Jacob around who he is. But this is the moment that he kind of owns up to it. I am Jacob. That is who I am. These things that people have said, the things that I've done, I am Jacob. And in that moment, God gives him a new name. As soon as he's willing to speak it, I am Jacob, he gets a new name, a new identity. Actually, you are the one that wrestles. You are the one that wrestles in this horizontal dimension and in the vertical one. You've wrestled with God, you've wrestled with man, and you've overcome You have persevered. You've stayed in those spaces. That's actually who you are. And this question of who am I, it's a really human question. You and I all wrestle with this, how we define ourselves. It's a question that changes throughout our lives. And Henry Nouwen says, we actually tend to answer this question with three lies. There are three lies that we live out the question of who we are in this world that drive us and motivate us and tell us who we are. The first lie is I am what I do. We see this with Jacob. Is he? Is he what he has done? The worst things that he's done? Is he really the deceiver? Is he really the one that is stealing and conniving and the liar? Is he what he does? Are you and I what we do? The worst and best things that we do? Is that what defines who we are? The second lie is I am what I have. Jacob, this is a big one for him. He wants the blessing. He wants to prosper. He wants the kids and the wives and the livestock. He wants to be able to say, like, this is who I am. It's even what he does when he's approaching Esau. He sends gifts to say, these are your brothers, who has lived all these years with Laban and has grown into something, because he has stuff. And this is a big one for you and I, right? Are we what we have? Are what we have in comparison to other people? Our houses, our cars, our families. Is that what defines who we are? And the third lie is I am what other people think or say about me. Now there's lots of people talking about Jacob. From Esau, who knows what Esau said about Jacob once Jacob took off and Laban's sons, what they've said about Jacob. And for you and I, we try really hard <laughs> to control what other people think and say about us. We try to present ourselves in a certain way so that people will see us in the way we want them to. And when that gets dinged, it, that's the spaces that we feel a lot of shame When someone is not seeing us the way that we want to, or something, we didn't present ourselves the way that we want to, we feel shame because we feel like it's hit on something about who we are. But God, in this moment, with Jacob, and I think throughout scripture, is offering not for Jacob or for you and I to define our identity in this horizontal realm, in the dimension of us versus other people, of what other people think about us, about what we have in comparison to other people. The invitation is to say, don't find your identity in that space because what is most true about you is rooted in your interaction with God. Let God root your identity there in who God says you are. And that's this moment, as Jacob comes to wrestle with God, there's an invitation here to say, don't let the other people define you and say who you are. Don't find your identity out here. Find your identity in me. And... I think the surprising offering of this text is that Jacob roots his identity in God through wrestling. It's part of how Jacob roots who he is in God. And I think it's the same for you and I. Part of how we understand who we are is wrestling with God. Engaging God in this way. And what we learn, South Harbor friends, is we are not what we do. You are not what you have. You are not what other people think or say about you. The truest thing about you is that you are the beloved child of God and you are not God. These are the two things that come to our identity when we engage God. Because Jacob, he doesn't get everything that he wants. He wrestles with God and he gets the blessing, but he wants to know the name. He wants to know the name of the one he wrestles, and he is denied that. God, in whatever form that God has shown up to this encounter, leaves still God, keeping that mystery intact. Jacob does not get to fully control what he wants. Jacob is put in his place a little bit. He has the message of you belong to me and you are my beloved child, but you are not God. There are things that are denied to you. There are things that are not your responsibility And really, ever since the fall, we have have this human tendency to want to get into the place of God, to make the decisions as if we are God. To have that control, we have a really hard time submitting to who God is and letting God define for us what is good for our lives. I work with congregations. I think a lot about the church. I think a lot about... Um, what it means to be the church in this era of history. And there's a lot of anxiety in mainline denominations across the U.S. There's a lot of fear because um, the church doesn't have the role in society that it used to have. And we're seeing decline in membership and involvement and all of that causes anxiety. And there's a whole bunch of fears um, and a whole bunch of theories about like what's going wrong and what's, Happening and how do we fix it? And I think there's great ideas out there. But one that I'd like to propose is that perhaps across the country, in various communities and individuals, we have stopped wrestling with God. And when I say wrestling, I don't mean you go out to the Jabbok and hope that some mysterious figure comes and physically wrestles you. But I do mean going to scripture And engaging, what is this? And what does this mean for me? And wrestling through the stories that we find there and the wisdom that we find there. And letting it impact and shape and change us. And I do mean going to God and saying, God, this is who you say you are. Fulfill your promises. Be God in this space. Boldly and humbly going to God. That's what I mean when I say wrestling. And the thing about wrestling with God is in order to do it, you have to believe three things. You have to believe God is real. You have to believe God cares about the things you care about. And you have to believe that God has the power to impact our world today. And I think the reason that we do not wrestle with God is because we do not believe one or more of those things. I think we're all here because we had a moment like Jacob did in the wilderness where the curtain was pulled back and we saw, I am not alone in this place. There is a vertical dimension to reality. And we heard something along the lines of, I am with you. I am real. And I will protect you I care about the things that you care about. And I will bring you back home. I have power in this world. We saw glimpses of it. I think that's why we're here. And then something happened in our interactions with each other and the world, and they didn't turn out the way that we want, and we just weren't so sure. So as we've gone through this series, we've looked at a couple things. We started in week one, and we acknowledged... We said, we need to acknowledge the wounds. We need to choose to forgive, and we need to stop running. And today, what I'm gonna challenge you to do is to come back to wrestling with God. And I think that the way that we do that is we start with being honest about what we're not so sure about anymore. If part of you is like, I don't know if you exist, God, then I would say that. God, I don't know if you care about me and the things I care about. I would bring that to God. Or I don't know if you have power in this world to impact the chaos I'm seeing. Say that too. Because here, I think, is the most incredibly good news for us. It is true I believe this. It is true. God is real. God does care. And God can impact our reality. I invite you to engage that wrestling with God. And practically, what that means is maybe waking up tomorrow and saying this short prayer God, I don't know if I believe that you care about me and the things I care about anymore. Please, God, today prove me wrong and then pray it again, and pray it again, and again, and again, and again, and keep wrestling, and do not let go until God shows up, God answers, and God blesses you. Please pray with me. Father God, you are a good God, and we believe that you are active in this space. Help us in the ways that we don't believe. I pray that you would teach us to wrestle, to be your church that engages you and your word and your promises so that your will and your work can be done in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.